Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. We all have things we'd like to accomplish in life, but just having goals or knowing that we should be doing something is often not even nearly enough to get us to actually sustain the effort required to get where we want to go. And I speak from considerable personal experience there. So what can we do to get the brain's motivational machinery on our side and build the habit of discipline over time? That's what we're going to be exploring today. To help us do that, I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist. He's a best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm really good, Forrest. And one thing that I, I kind of hope we can explore hmm. is how you can feel both relaxed and spacious and mellow while being continually called to the greater good for yourself and for other people. How to find that sweet spot. Maybe I'm giving away too much that we're going to be getting into here, but I have to tell <laughs> no, you. No, not at all. It's a great preview. There's a kind of a line. There are old climbers and there are bold climbers. Mm. There are very few old, bold climbers. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. a version of that is sort of like, if you're going to sustain a marathon of this life, you just cannot do it at the pace of a sprint. Yeah. You burn out, binging and purging, binging and purging approaches to motivation are not good. So anyway, I hope we can explore that kind of sweet spot in which you more glide (laughs) toward the good than scratch and claw your way up the mountain. For sure. And you've set me up beautifully for this distinction that I wanted to offer anyways at the beginning of the podcast. So thanks for doing that, which is exactly what you're talking about. This difference, as I see it, between bursts of motivation, when we use a word like motivation, we're typically, at least for me, what's immediately called from to mind are motivational speeches, big pump-up moments in a sports movie, or the idea that there's essentially this speed bump of discomfort that we have to get over in order to do what we know we should be doing. I immediately, I'm so sorry to interrupt you, I just have a visual from multiple movies I've seen of a drill sergeant <laughs> yeah, screaming yeah. at various recruits, screaming at somebody, pump more absolutely. iron, yeah, <laughs> lift totally, that thing. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. And it's exactly like that. And so we have to kind of do that inside of ourselves in order to get over the discomfort and pursue yeah. the goals that we want to pursue. And then once we get over that hump, we're kind of carried along by whatever it is that we're doing. But I think that focusing on that very narrow view of motivation is a really big mistake because we become a slave to our feelings, essentially. We can't do a good behavior anymore unless we are motivated enough in the moment to do it. And virtually every meaningful accomplishment that at least I've had in my life, and I would love your take on this, has occurred because I kept on doing things even if I didn't necessarily want to in the moment. And to me, that's discipline. That's not motivation. It's the habit of motivation. And that's what we're really going to be focusing on today. How can we become more disciplined? And maybe in that pursuit, as you were saying in the introduction, really feel ourselves naturally carried toward the things that we want to accomplish. There is a proverb from early Buddhism that says, essentially, wisdom is choosing a greater happiness over a lesser one. Mm. And that which we're drawn to that gets in the way of our higher road is typically rewarding. Yeah, We do it because we like it. I remember giving a talk once to an audience of parents of teenagers. This is before you actually went to high school. <laughs> Basically, they, they asked me really sincerely, why do kids like drugs? And I said, well, because they feel good. <laughs> That's why they do it. Why do kids do so much of what they do, including things that are problematic? So we do it because we like it. And you make me think about a couple of distinctions here. Mm-hmm. One, there's a distinction between discomfort and a conflict of desires. In other words, mm. a person could feel uncomfortable jogging, speaking from some experience, and still keep jogging because the discomfort's okay with them. It's not that they want to stop, it's that they're okay with the minor discomfort in the sake of the greater good, you know, the the greater happiness, if you will. The second thing I want to then also distinguish is between when there truly is goal conflict 
And what do you do when 1% of you knows you really need to do something, but 99% of you is pulling in the other direction? Mm. And we're going to be exploring, I'm sure, how to help that 1% mm. and how to gradually build out that 1% to that wonderful tipping point when it's more like 51% and then 80-20, and then you're really on your way. Great. So with all of that as a context, I would like to ask what might appear initially to be a bit of a well-duh question, but I actually think that it's both pretty interesting on its own and really important to understand to allow us to unpack some other stuff that'll happen later in the episode. So why is it that we don't just want the things that we know are good for us? Why is cognitively knowing that something is a thing that we should be doing not enough? Part of it has to do with the distinction between short-term and long-term. Mm. Very often, the cost of the higher road, I'll just put it in that term, those terms, the cost of the higher road is concrete and immediate Yeah, and often very penetrating and somatic and emotional. We feel it. You know, the cost of going to that gym and lifting those weights or the cost of restraining yourself with another person when, wow, do you just want to blast them with anger, let's say, because- that's a different kind of motivational domain that's actually really important. What are our motivations in our emotional life with other people? The cost of all that is short-term, concrete, and immediate, while the gains are diffuse and abstract mm -hmm. and distributed out into the future. And that's a really tough call for people. So that's one major reason. And I think the, the second major category is people have inner conflict. Mm. Freud was right. Shakespeare was right. To be yeah. or not to be, <laughs> inner conflict. We get pulled in different directions. I think there are passages even in the Iliad. So you have these characters, Achilles, Hector, who talk about their ambivalence. They're mm. pulled in different directions. What do we do about that? Okay, so I kind of set the table there a little bit. What do you think, Forrest? You are someone who, if I can be honest, was not very task motivated. <laughs> I see where we're going here, okay? <laughs> you were very motivated to yeah. learn and explore. You love to read. Yeah, you love totally. to imagine. Mm -hmm. You were very motivated toward being sweet and, and just and, mm. and fair Thank and you. That's promoting nice. others. You really were. So you're motivated in many kinds of ways, but motivated to sit down and grind through the fourth draft of your term paper in seventh grade. <laughs> Boy, Oh, is that a motivation? Uh -huh. And yet, over time, you have become very, to use your word, disciplined mm -hmm. in all kinds of ways, yeah. in, including in task-oriented ways in which the rewards are fairly diffuse and in the mm -hmm. future. So I know you've got a lot to share here, including how you learn to do things yourself and become more motivated over time. Yeah, well, I want to put a pin in something that you said there, because I think that it's a really important point, which is this idea of being a seventh grader writing a term paper, plugging away on the fourth draft of it. So we're talking somebody who is 12 or 13 years old, needing to do like heavily cognitively oriented, focused, task-positive work for an extended period of time. What animal is built for that purpose? And the answer is exactly none of them, including us. So, so one of the points that I want to make here, which attaches to the rest of the conversation, is that the motivational machinery of our brain and body of the mind-body system, is constructed for an environment that we no longer exist inside of. And the needs of animals are really pretty simple. You've outlined them many, many times, Dad. There's safety, satisfaction, and connection, which I would summarize as A, don't die, B, get <laughs> enough calories <laughs> to survive, and C, pass on your gene copies. That's what we're here to do. And what you see is that inside of modern society, there are a lot of behaviors that probably made a lot of sense 20,000 and certainly 100,000 years ago that do not make sense today. Various forms of conserving effort, which today we would call lazy. Going after really, really high-calorie food sources whenever possible. These days, that's pretty unhealthy because we're constantly surrounded by high-calorie food sources. And then maybe even some versions of being careful about your risk exposure, staying inside of what you really know, your home base, because you know that that's 
where you're going to be safe. And we have words for people like that, like boring or unadventurous, or you're being a shudden forest, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever it might be. And so I think that it's really important to just take a moment here to highlight that we aren't really built to sustain effort into the fourth draft of that term paper in pursuit of some abstract goal, a grade that may or may not benefit us. So what we're defining as like good these days is often at odds, actually, with what the brain thinks of as good. And that higher order processing, that very cognitive function, is not always aligned with the brain's underlying motivational machinery. And that gap is often why people persist in various addictive habits that they know cognitively are bad for them because cognizing itself is just not enough. So that was kind of an answer to a part of your question, Dad, and I, and I really wanted to get that in there to, to answer the bigger part of it, which is like, how, how do you close that gap? For me, I think that a lot of it is that I moved away from things being choices to things being actions, things that I had to do. I stopped asking myself, do I want to do this? And started moving into a paradigm where it's on the schedule, so I must do it. Because I think that if I'm a prisoner to my feelings, I'm just going to play video games all day. Like That's how I'm oriented. I'm just going to sit on the couch and read a book or play a video game or whatever. So for me, a little bit of discomfort is always the price to entry because that's the way that my system is wired. Mm. It isn't easy for me to this day to jump out of bed at some reasonable time and really get plugging away on the podcast. Like I need to have it be a task that just is a part of my values identity. And that habit has really been forged over time. It makes me think about your grandfather, my dad, growing up on a ranch in North Dakota. And what I observed about him and the people in that culture mm. is that they rarely worked quickly and they rarely stopped working. Mm -hmm. They just kept going. And there was an aspect in what they did in which kind of like you're describing, they surrendered to the stream they were in, the exigencies, yeah. to use a fancy word, the requirements of their situation. They just surrendered to it. They weren't resisting it along the way. For me, one of the top sorts of psychotherapies is mm -hmm. psychosynthesis mm. Uh, developed by Asagioli from Italy. And psychosynthesis is profound. It's fantastic. I highly recommend it. It's very integrative. And it has these two primary dimensions in it, love and will. Mm. And essentially, the way I would define will is surrendering to your higher purposes. Mm. It's an interesting way to think about willpower rather than forcing yourself up the, up the mountain or to swim against the stream, you surrender to the positive currents and let them carry you along. Yeah. And I think that you know, there's a whole question here about what's the difference between the internal experience of somebody and their mm -hmm. outer behavior, just the distinction. The outer behavior could be dutiful, while internally a person is really angry about what they have to do, feeling really rebellious, accumulating a lot of inner stress. That's the friction between what they are doing and how they really feel inside. Or differently, a person can look at what their duty is. Mm. What are the exigencies of their circumstances, including their duty to the person they will be tomorrow mm. or in the last 10 years or a year of their own life, for example, in terms of health care, things like that. So you can surrender to all that. You can be carried along by all that without feeling like you're gnashing your teeth and wailing along the way. So yeah. there's no friction. There's no friction between you and what you're called to do. To me, that's the way to go. And it's something to develop. I definitely had to develop that over time. Yeah. And I know you're going to get into the neurobiology, but the crux of it for me is, is frictionless contentment. Yeah. How do you do that? How do you help yourself learn to want what's good for you that you don't want already? Yeah, I think to maybe put what you were just saying into language that's helpful for me, you're really talking about creating a kind of unity 
between the desires of the system and the desires of our higher order processing. And that's when things get frictionless. But where friction emerges inside of the system is when people are pulled in multiple directions. And they might be pulled in multiple directions because of some of the things that you talked about toward the beginning of the podcast, you know, Achilles having some inner deep conflict psychologically or Freud with the monsters in the basement and all of that good stuff. But another way, a pretty simple and basic way that people have internal conflict is when there's a conflict between our biological systems and our higher order cognitive processing. And one of the fascinating parts of the brain is that we can exert an enormous amount of thought process while also being a total prisoner to our biology. We can know cognitively all kinds of things, and yet we move almost like a kind of robot sometimes into behaviors that we know are not good for us. And okay, why is that? And in order to help us understand that, it can be helpful to know a bit about the brain's motivational circuit, which is largely governed by the neurotransmitter dopamine. I'm going to be simplifying a lot here. And as always, when I do these kind of neuro dumps, it's worth noting that I'm not a neuroscientist. And I'm sharing this to the best of my knowledge. It's always possible that I could be leaving something out here. So while it's common to hear people refer to dopamine as a pleasure molecule, that's really not quite accurate. And our understanding of these systems has improved a lot over time. For the purposes of what we're doing here, dopamine has two big functions in the brain. The first is that it is a big part of how we learn and particularly how we remember things. And then second, it releases when we anticipate a pleasurable experience. And that idea of anticipation is really, really important for this conversation. So dopamine signals to the brain how motivationally salient, in other words, like how much we should be motivated to pursue something or how motivated we should be to avoid something. And when your brain thinks that an enjoyable experience is about to come along, it tends to release a ton of dopamine. And ongoing dopamine activity indicates that something is worth paying attention to, so we stay really focused on it. And then when those dopamine levels drop, our focus starts to wane, and we get distracted by other things that are going on out in the world. So receiving some big rush of dopamine feels pretty good, which is why it's associated with pleasure, but it's much more accurate to think of it as a motivation molecule or as a kind of, hey, this thing is really important, so you should keep on paying attention to it molecule. Now, this occurs in a pathway, a circuit in the brain called the mesolimbic pathway. And as you might expect, pretty much every substance of abuse that I'm aware of, whether it's tobacco or crack cocaine or sugar, affects this brain pathway. And these things are so addictive because the brain really likes them. It's what you were saying earlier, Dad, right? Like the brain enjoys these experiences. So if you're not into neurobiology, you can just skip the next few minutes, but I think this stuff is pretty cool and understanding it can also give us some good ideas of what to do about it. So the mesolimbic pathway starts at the top of your brainstem in a location called the ventral tegmental area, or the VTA. As our sense of anticipation increases, neurons in this area of the brain produce dopamine. And this pathway connects the VTA to a part of your brain called the nucleus accumbens, which is located inside of the subcortex. And this region is strongly associated with motivational systems. As the quantity of dopamine in that region increases, it sends signals to other parts of the brain that push us to take action in pursuit of the perceived reward. So we've got a big release of dopamine because we're anticipating something being really great. So this sends out signals to other parts of the brain saying, go after that thing. And then as this is all happening, the VTA is connected to another part of the brain. Those, that's the frontal cortex through this other pathway that's kind of going on in parallel, which is called the mesocortical dopamine pathway. As dopamine activity in this part of the brain increases, our attention gets focused on what's rewarding. It also stimulates our executive functions to try to keep on figuring out how those rewards can keep coming to us so we can get even more of them. And really important point here, generally speaking, when we have a higher resting level of dopamine, it makes it a lot easier for people to concentrate on tasks that aren't immediately rewarding. And lower levels of dopamine in the system are a risk factor for various psychological challenges like depression, and there's some evidence that dysfunction of this system is associated with ADHD. So a point that I just want to drop in here really quickly is that our goal 
to simplify a lot of this is to increase resting state dopamine and to not have too much fluctuation in the dopamine system because when we get a really huge spike of dopamine, it actually decreases the subsequent amount of dopamine in the system, which is one of the reasons that addictive substances can start to make people not want anything else in their life. They just pursue that substance, including to the exclusion of things like eating or sustaining themselves in other ways. Fantastic summary, Forrest. And Thank you. I want to bow to you and also bow to Mother Nurture, mm. who has evolved this remarkable machinery, really, this hardware in us. And also, I want to really appreciate our cousins in the animal kingdom, non-human animals, who have in their brains, like the brain of a rat or the brain of a squirrel, roughly the size of the interior of a walnut. It's that small. But inside that very small brain of a little rat is more or less the same mm. structure of the certainly yep. the mesolimbic yeah. pathway with an emerging mesocortical pathway because the cortical regions of the of a rat compared to a human are not so developed. So a rat doesn't have the capacities for abstraction and complexity, let's say a human does. But deep down inside, boy to boy, oh boy, does that little rat want to find its mommy? Boy, oh boy, oh boy, does that little rat want to get some cheese, right? So it brings me into a kind of kindness, I guess, toward non-human mm. animals, which is really important, I think, morally, given the heavy foot of the human species on you know, so many other animals. So I would offer maybe two quick reflections yeah, on what totally. you said so far. The first is to make the distinction between liking and wanting. Mm -hmm. And as you say, in the nucleus accumbens, there are these little neural nodules that are very involved with wanting, and there are other nodules that are very involved with liking. And it is important to appreciate that, for example, people can be highly motivated, for example, to pull a slot machine lever, who do not enjoy it, particularly when a bunch of quarters fall into the cup. They just keep on pulling. There's a saying that wanting without liking is hell, liking without wanting is heaven. Mm. And so I just want to call out that the dopamine system itself is not that involved with liking. Natural opioids, endorphins, and other neurochemicals and other systems are more involved with that. And the takeaway from that, beyond the technical research uh, that's, that's really interesting, is that it's important to appreciate that we can be driven toward certain goals while not enjoying it very much along the way. And it's important to pay attention to what's it like to be you, right? When you're slogging through your to-do list, when you're grinding on your checklist, when, when you're moving through your duties over the course of your day, maybe numbly plodding along, deep down inside, what's it like to be you? And is that really what you're wanting to do? And is that really, really what you like to do? If it is something you just need to do because of your duties, I remember looking out a window in Finland where I lived when I was a kid, I was mm. 14 or 15 at the time, and looking down on the street and watching a worker walk home at night through those snowy streets. And I could just somehow intuit and empathize that life was difficult for him. You know, he had a lot of duties and still he was doing his job. He was heading home, probably supporting a family. And, you know, sometimes we do have duties. That said, can we find a way to not resist what we have to do and create friction between us and, our, and the world and our duties and other people? And can we find a way that there's intrinsic rewards, intrinsic rewards for what we're doing on that path? Second point, besides that distinction between liking and wanting. Which, for the record, I think is a really important distinction. Dopamine is a wanting molecule way more than it's a liking molecule. Exactly. And I want to give a tip of the hat here to the research of Kent Barrage, who's one of my heroes in the research world, who really has been driving a lot of the bus here about pointing this out and shifting the whole field of motivational neurobiology and into one that recognizes that liking and wanting can be objectively distinct in the underlying hardware inside our skull and much as they are subjectively distinct. And it's a very interesting exploration for people. It's been enormously helpful for me to decouple liking from wanting. Yeah. Wanting in the problematic, narrow sense of craving and 
you know, pressured, contracted insistence. That's kind of problematic. You may need to do that for a short term to get out of a burning building or to Mm -hmm. push through a tough time at at work. But in general, it's very stressful. It's much better to try to find a way to, yeah, keep on going without that sense of contracted pressure. Which, again, just loops back to our underlying point of the distinction between motivation and discipline, where I think that motivation Ah. has often that feeling of contraction associated with it. Ah. But the goal for me of discipline is that it becomes a very softly held process because you just do it. Well, that's very interesting. So I'm going to bounce off that about, you know, the root of the word discipline is disciple. Yeah. So there's this sense of being given over to a mm-hmm. cause or a calling. Yeah, totally. that's very lovely. You're lifted along mm-hmm. by your devotion, in a sense. Okay, second, natural variation in dopamine metabolism. And this is one of the coolest, most relevant findings from neuroscience, which totally. is there are variations, basically, in the expression of receptors for dopamine at the synaptic level. So as you have basically the synapse is like a docking station where container vessels bring in molecules of one thing or another, dopamine, serotonin, and so forth. They, you know, the transmitting neuron sends those container vessels across this tiny cleft. You could put several thousand of them inside the width of a single human hair. They ooze across, they get released across, and then those container vessels land at the synapses, these docks, and then release their contents, which get taken into the cell and form signals and so forth. All right. Well, if you have a lot of receptors for dopamine, it doesn't take much dopamine to give you a dopamine signal. On the other hand, if you don't have many receptors, the dopamine at those particular receptor sites gets taken up, so dopamine is depleted. What this means is that people who have the genetic variant in which they express a lot of dopamine receptors don't need much stimulation or reward or anticipation of reward to just keep on going. On the other hand, people who express fewer receptors, in effect, are dopamine depleters, they need an ongoing trickle or surge of dopamine to stay motivated, to keep interested, to keep enjoying what they're doing, Mm -hmm. and not just run out of gas 80% of the way through, but never get to completion on things. And the point here is that this is nobody's fault. Yeah, This is just how we're wired, which goes to a broader point of compassion for the ways in which we're big monkeys, we're designed for the Stone Age, We're designed for Jurassic Park in the Serengeti Plains. And it's not our fault that we are the way we are, although it is our responsibility for how we deal with it. This means from a practical standpoint that those who have not expressed, it's just their temperament, it's their genetics, they just don't have a lot of dopamine, A, is to really appreciate them because these tend to be the creative explorers Mm. looking for something new, needing some new thing. What's the news, Jack? you know, kind of people that really kind of move the species, move the tribe forward, (laughs) move the company forward, move the family forward. Great. Second key point, if you are this sort of person, you can really help yourself. A, by increasing the ongoing stream of novelty, stimulation, and reward in whatever it is that you're doing. And second, turn up the volume psychologically, through mental training, mindfulness training included, in the sense of the reward value of what is coming your way. So you're both increasing the quantity of rewards coming your way, and you're increasing the intensity, the average intensity of individual rewards, so you can stay motivated. Mm. So that is a perfect segue into the more how-to part of the episode. If somebody finds all of this very natural and very easy, if you're the kind of person who maybe has a lot of receptors or naturally higher levels, resting state of dopamine, you can stay on task, you can stay focused quite easily. Great. But for those of us, perhaps, as you said, Dad, me included, who struggle to stay a little disciplined, what can we do? Oh, well, one thing, of course, is to set up your situation, including other people, so that it's just more stimulating. Yeah. Even like meditation instructions to, instead of just focusing on the sensations of the breath at your upper lip, if you're doing mindfulness of breathing, be aware of your whole body Mm. or open your eyes while you meditate 
or meditate while walking. So you're getting more natural stimulation. That's a thing to do. Choose classrooms. <laughs> if you're a parent and you know your kid is sort of spirited, bouncy, and wonderful, and just sort of looking for the new thing and gets bored quickly, you know, you want to look for a teacher in fifth grade who's more stimulating, who's looser, who's more dynamic, there's more learning by doing, more whole body learning, more small group learning, just more stimulating rather than a teacher who insists on people sitting quietly with their hands folded on top of their desk, listening to a long, slow motion lecture about something or other. You know, you, so you look to adapt your environment. Second, I think it's just fantastic to pay close attention to how sweet the reward is mm. and to what feels good about it. You know, there are meditative techniques where you basically take a raisin and one raisin for five or 10 minutes and you just keep paying attention to the sweetness, the flavors, the subtleties of the raisin. I had a meditation teacher who told me that when he was practicing in Southeast Asia as a monk, his teacher told him to meditate on the sensations of the breath at the upper lip and every day come back for his daily interview with, his, with the abbot of the monastery and describe something new he noticed. Mm. <laughs> you can do that for maybe three or four days in a row, but if you're going to do it for a month, you really have to pay acute attention, right? And in the process of that, you can have a deeper sense of what could be pleasurable mm. about what you're doing. I think it's great to just follow the traditional instructions. You know, before doing something you want to be disciplined about or motivated toward, imagine in a very rich way, emotionally and somatically, the various rewards from it, including maybe your happiness that other people will be happy that you're doing this thing, mm. you know, you're exercising more or drinking less alcohol, whatever it might be. And then while doing it, super focus on the rewards of doing it. So you start to associate in the work of Charles Duhigg, Dr. Judson Brewer, and others. You're associating. It's classic operant conditioning. Yeah. We, we are big rats. You know, <laughs> you are associating the reward with the behavior yeah, you want yeah. to motivate, you, totally. know, you want to develop, right? While doing it. And then afterward, reflect on it. Mm. What feels good about it? Yeah. What do you like about it? You know, I get off the treadmill and I'm like, yeah, I feel good. I like it. And I'm really glad I ticked that box mm. and feel more vital. And, you know, I kind of good on you. So that would be a way to stay motivated to do things. As somebody who has a long history of painful acne and related skin issues, I know how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's where our sponsor, OneSkin, comes in. Most skincare available on the market is designed to provide a temporary reduction in symptoms without addressing many of the underlying causes. OneSkin's OS01 line of products targets cellular senescence. This is a key hallmark of aging, directly with their proprietary OS01 peptide. The OS01 peptide can reduce the number of senescent cells by up to 50%, strengthening the skin barrier, improving skin health markers, and reducing visible signs of aging. I've been using their OS01 face topical supplement, and I love how simple it is. You just cleanse, you pat your skin dry, and apply twice daily. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After you purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. We all know that the food we eat today affects how we feel tomorrow. But what if I told you that it could affect how you felt in 20 years? We're learning so much these days about our bodies, and one of the challenges for people right now is that there's an enormous amount of information out there, but it can be difficult to separate fact from fiction. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Naomi's Apple Review says Zoe Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume, even if you don't understand the science, with loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting, cutting-edge science. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Naomi and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. To steal some language, you already gave him a shout out, so I'll just keep on doing it. To Judd Brewer, who we've talked to twice on the podcast, wonderful guy, great researcher also. We're trying to update the reward value of our experiences a little bit here. And this has been a super useful idea for me in my personal life that I've really been thinking about a lot recently, which is that most of our experiences that we have on a day-to-day basis, of course, there are some exceptions, but most of the experiences that we have are made up of a lot of different aspects. They're, they're built from different pieces, like different little Lego blocks. And some of those pieces are really enjoyable. And some of them are not. Sitting at my desk and working for eight hours in a day has aspects that are really, really enjoyable. I feel intrigued by the work that I'm doing. I'm, I'm interested in it. I obviously get a lot of rewards personally from doing the podcast. Uh, I get excited about the next topic that we're going to talk about. And then it has aspects that I don't like. Uh, for instance, recently I've been having some little physical issues And so sitting at a desk can be physically uncomfortable for an extended period of time. I get bored. I get hungry. I get irritated by having to send somebody who's pitched the same person for the podcast five times in the last month yet another polite thank you declining email, whatever it might be. The point of this is that that experience is made up of a lot of different aspects. And you can think about Mm. this with most any experience. To use Dr. Judd's example, smoking a cigarette is not a purely enjoyable experience for a person most of the time, but the brain just really focuses on the enjoyable aspects of it, particularly that big hit of dopamine that it gets. So a big question that we can ask ourselves over and over again throughout the course of our day is not whether or not an experience is pleasant or unpleasant, but rather what aspects of the experience are you choosing to focus on right now? And I think that that change is just a huge game changer for so many things because it lets us really intervene in these experiences that can be addictive, that we know are not great for us. So it lets me just sort of break the stream inside of my brain and regain control of my own experience. That is so interesting what you're getting at, Forrest. Hmm. And it reminds me of this material in a classic book called Neurotic Styles. Yeah, Neurotic Styles. We should do a Neurotic Styles podcast sometime because it has come up on the show so many times at this point. Definitely. And the section on obsessive compulsive Mm -hmm. styles. And the key point that I really remember from that material 35, 40 years ago was about the loss of autonomy. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about, yeah, for sure. In effect, as Tara Brock would talk about it, waking up from the trance. Yeah, we wake up from the trance, and and then reset, and in effect, reestablish our autonomy, our agency, so that we're not just controlled, in effect, by our habit pattern that draws us in a certain direction, but instead, suddenly wake up. To realize that, oh, we actually are the captain of our own personal little motorboat, mm-hmm. and we put our hand on the tiller and start heading it in a different direction. We're claiming autonomy, mm-hmm. and there's something really important about that. Mm-hmm. And waking up from these habit trances that just sweep us in these other directions. Mm-hmm. It feels kind of sacred almost when you just you wake up 
you wake up. There you are. Second point, you really make me think about this material that I'm going to reveal from the EST training many, many moons ago. And one of the things that I extracted from that training, which for me was a very, very useful, powerful experience, the training itself, is this essentially distinction between being, doing, and having. And Mm. the point that the trainers and you know, this material comes from Warner Earhart made was that we typically think we need to have certain things so that we can do the things they enable that will finally let us be the ways we want to be. But in fact, if you keep trying to move from having to doing to being, typically having and doing crowd out being and keep the states of being that we really want out of reach. What's better is to switch the sequence Mm. and instead move from being to doing and then having. Mm. And a lot of what we're talking about here with regard to motivation and discipline is aided by feeling into who do I want to be? On a previous podcast, you've talked about this a lot. For example, am I being someone who hates exercise and has to make himself do it? Mm -hmm. Or Am I being a naturally vital, alive, large male mammal (laughs) who needs to move and build muscle mass over time in ways that are enjoyable and pleasurable as healthy? Am I being a naturally healthy person who manifests their healthiness through exercise, Mm -hmm. for example? And being is the origin point. Being precedes becoming. I think Mm. some philosopher said that. (laughs) Heidegger? I have no idea. Anyway, someone will probably tell us correctly, which would be great. (laughs) So the question for people and question, you know, for me and maybe for you too is, who do you want to be? What sense of being would naturally be the origin point, the wellspring, if you will, for the kinds of doing that you want to encourage in your life? Yeah. Yeah. If you want to be, let's say, closer, you want to have a life partner. Well, what does a person need to be to have a life partner and keep a life partner? Mm. To find one, sure. to keep one, Yeah. right? Well, oh, okay, I'm being relational. I'm being mm-hmm. loving. I'm being open. I'm being curious. I'm being interested, right? That's who I'm being. I'm being someone who is autonomous, who has agency. You know, mm-hmm. I'm being a chooser in this life. I'm being a cause rather than an effect in this life. Okay, so I settle into... And I find my way home to these ways of being, then from which doing and having naturally flow. I love this. And part of the reason that I love this is because I I think that it gets to something that I've been really thinking about a lot recently, which is the ways in which we try to be things because we think we're supposed to be them as opposed to Mm. because we actually want to be them. Yeah, And that example that you gave about what would I have to be in order to find a life partner is a really interesting one, right? Because there's a lot of social pressure to find a life partner, to Mm. find a singular person that you spend 30, 40, 50 years of your life with, you grow old together, you often Mm. die together, whatever it might be. And I think that there's a real place for taking a look at that question What would I have to be in order to do this? And for people to look at that clearly and go, you know what? I don't want to be that. Mm. And then all of a sudden, a new kind of universe opens up to a person that often can have some pain and suffering, frankly, associated with it because it requires the killing of a myth that we have been given by the culture of that there is this one way to do life and that if you do it a different way, you are wrong. But Mm. in truth, you're just being more consistent with what you actually want to be as opposed to what you've been told you should be, which gets to a broader point, which is that change is hard. Mm. Motivation is hard. Discipline is hard. These are hard things. So if you're going to go to all the effort to be disciplined toward an end, choose one you want. You know, Choose one that's (laughs) consistent with who you actually want to be in the world as opposed to because some large-scale cultural forest told you, oh no, forest, this is what you actually want. And then we all have a moment these days, or many of us at the very least have the freedom to have a moment where we can go, wait a moment, is that actually the case or not? 
And that moment is a very, very powerful moment for people, I think. There's a saying, you can never get enough of what you don't really want. Absolutely, which is so consistent with, with how I've been thinking about this territory and just appreciating that there are these huge forces out there that are trying to get us to be a certain kind of way for reasons that have nothing to do with our own well-being, whether it's that they're trying to hack the brain's dopamine system by creating these highly addictive experiences out in the world that pull us away from what we might think of as our true purposes, or they're trying to sell us a cultural narrative that allows them to create these large systems that are not beneficial to most people, whatever it might be. And to just appreciate that the deck is a little stacked here. So we have to put in a lot of effort these days to retain that underlying sense of discipline and motivation toward our true nature, our true goals in life. I guess what's highlighted for me when I look at my own history, mm -hmm. in which I initially was not a very motivated person. You've known me in kind of the second half of my life in which you've probably seen me to be a pretty diligent, task-oriented person, but I wasn't that way initially. For the record, I think that you are the single most effortful person I have ever met in my life, period, bar none, in, in my adult experience of you. Like, I, I don't even know who second place is, I just know that you're first. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't, it's not a question for me. <laughs> That's really interesting. Well, what makes it work is to not have it be so effortful. Yeah. I know yeah. you you didn't mean that word in that sense, but No, it's a great distinction. Yeah, it's about what helped me along the way was to stop resisting what I needed to do or wanted to do or what was necessary for being really drawn toward the good. Mm. And some of that resisting is actually very self-referential. So, for example, in my own history with groups in school, as you know, I skipped a grade. I was a very young, shy, dorky guy. I had a lot of experiences of feeling left out, unwanted, and so forth. So I have a history in which I'm kind of afraid to become visible in a group. Mm. And mm -hmm. that has created a certain shroud or cloud that held me down and suppressed me in certain ways, especially in the groups of you know, elite people, the really cool kids. To sit at the head table has always been a scary prospect for me. Mm -hmm. So to, in effect, allow the overall trajectory of my life to be as high as it can just be based on causes and conditions and not constrained by mm -hmm. losing my nerve or losing faith with myself, I've had to really work with this internal inhibition about full self-expression and being visible. And in a, one way to do that is to acknowledge the other stuff that comes up, to acknowledge not wanting to, to acknowledge fears of different kinds, to acknowledge, you know, oh, it'll be hard, it'll be cold, or I'll be embarrassed, or, you know, they may not want me. Uh, I, I might ask someone out on a date and they don't want to go on a date, you know, just all that. To bow to all that, acknowledge it all. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And then totally surrender. Yeah. Surrender to your higher purpose, your greater service, your larger contribution. Surrender to the actualization of all you are that wants to move through you out into the world. Get out of your own way. You know, there's this dimension here, in other words, and I'm flagging of surrender, of release, of letting go, and then letting yourself be really carried along. What I really hear in that, Dad, is clearing away the obstructions to being disciplined. Yeah. What are the avoidance mechanisms? What are the anxieties? What are the fears that lie underneath the story we tell ourselves about why we are or aren't doing something? Like, what are those underlying psychological sources? Yeah. What gets in the way of being, I'm going to play with the word discipline here. What gets in the way of being a disciple of your deepest, truest purposes in this one wild and precious life? Well, that was a beautiful statement, Dad. I really like that. We're going we're gonna to highlight that quote because I think that that was a really, really good one. And as we just come to the end here, I want to do a little loop back because we've spent a lot of time with the psychological and the big picture and the ooey-gooey underbelly of the mind back to some of those dopamine systems in the meat that I was talking about and just spend a little bit of time here with some practical how-tos about interacting with this system including, I think, a really key point in our modern environments, which is that, as I mentioned earlier, when we receive a huge surge of dopamine from doing something, taking a drug, eating an extremely sugary food, scrolling on a smartphone screen, 
the brain responds. In the moment, the first time it happens, we feel amazing. But then what about the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth time it happens? And the brain is an incredibly flexible system. And you were talking about those receptors earlier, Dad, where some people have more receptors, some people have fewer receptors. And there's fascinating research that shows that when people receive big spikes of dopamine over a sustained period of time, the brain eventually responds by decreasing the number of receptors person has. It adapts. It says, whoa, I'm getting way too flooded with dopamine these days. I got to do something about this. And so the number of receptors goes down. And so the consequence of this is that experiences that we once found really enjoyable no longer have the same zest for us because the brain is essentially comparing them to these constructed modern experiences that are built to maximize the amount of dopamine that you're getting in the shortest period of time possible. Illicit drugs are not the only things that mess with this system. And think about anything that interacts with anticipation. As I've mentioned a couple of times, electronics use in general, particularly smartphones and social media, where many of those platforms were designed, sometimes quite literally, to induce craving of different kinds to keep people hooked on those systems. Smoking and alcohol, sugary foods, as I've mentioned, then also things like gambling, is really, really designed to interact, as you were saying, Dad, with the person who's pulling the slot machine, mm. and they just keep on pulling it regardless of whether or not they're winning. And something that we can do is that if a person reduces some of those behaviors for a long enough period of time, there is some evidence that this can provide a kind of soft reset for the body's systems. And this can cause experiences that were once pleasurable, but have ceased to be enjoyable enough for the brain to become enjoyable again. And that means that that feeling of reward can get more closely associated with them again, which increases motivation, increasing discipline, all of that good stuff that you were talking about earlier. Then, on the other hand, there are some things that cause lower levels of dopamine that are exactly what you would expect, things like not getting enough sleep or getting really stressed out. And then there are some things that can increase good dopamine. So this increases resting state dopamine that doesn't lead to those huge spikes we were talking about that are a bit problematic. The best studied, I think, one of these is probably exercise, where exercise is closely associated with dopamine systems in the brain and body, uh, tends to induce a rise in dopamine post-exercise and while somebody is exercising. So that's a great way, if you tend to be a naturally low dopamine person, to get a little bit more of that in your system. There's also really interesting research on stuff like music, hmm. where people have attempted to do these studies on why is it that we find music enjoyable. And some of them have found that it seems like it activates the dopamine system, although we're not totally sure how that works and what's going on there, and I want to hold that lightly. But if you're somebody who struggles to focus during the day while you're doing some work, hey, maybe it would help you to have some stuff on in the background that makes your life a little bit easier. And this gets me to my final point, and it connects to something you were talking about earlier with more spirited people being allowed to be in classroom environments that are more spirited. Let fish be fish, man. Just let fish be fish. Stop trying to get fish to climb trees out there because they're always going to feel <laughs> like they are bad at climbing trees. And what I mean by that is that we have so much pressure in the culture to try to make people do things a certain kind of way. And a lot of people are just fighting their bodies all day, every day, yeah. to be the way that the culture wants them to be. And most of the time, that is not to anybody's benefit. And yeah. if you're in an environment where somebody is making you do those things, where you don't have control, that really sucks, and there's not always something that you can do about it. But in your own life, if you know that there is a way for you to do something that works a little bit better for you, but it looks a little weird, you have to sit in a funny way, or you have to stim in various kinds of ways, or you need loud music blasting in order to do your work, or you need to get up and run around the room three times every 15 minutes in order to stimulate parts of your system. If that's what you got to do, do it. Like, please, to the extent to which it is helpful, allow this to be your permission to do whatever you have to do to activate the systems that work for you, as opposed to being narrowly focused on what you have been told is the right way to do something. That's such a great way to end it, really. Yeah, to thine own self be true, right? Yeah. Absolutely. 
Well, today I had a wonderful time talking with Rick about motivation and how we can work with the systems of motivation and discipline that exist inside of our minds and bodies. We began today's episode by distinguishing between motivation and discipline. We often think of motivation as a burst of energy, something that gets us over a speed bump and into action. But in order to give a burst of energy, we generally need to really rev ourselves up. It's a momentary thing. It's not a habit. And what we really focused on during this episode is what people can do to build the habit of discipline so that they are naturally carried toward the purposes, toward the ends that they want to achieve in this life. I then asked Rick why it was that we don't just want the things that we know are good for us. And to simplify a big body of knowledge here, many of the behaviors that we think of as bad, addictions, habits that hold us back from achieving our goals, and so on, tend to actually have very clear and immediate connections between the activity and rewards that we receive from it. You take the drug, you get the chemical hit. And this is really not the case from behaviors that we conventionally think of as good or useful or productive. You can take a moment to think about many of the behaviors that we generally consider good, things like working diligently, stretching ourselves by learning something new, or even simple things like exercising. These might have great long-term rewards, but they're often less than pleasurable. They have uncomfortable aspects. And that gets to a key point that came up a couple times during the episode, which is this idea of the aspects of different experiences. Most everyday activities have pleasurable aspects and unpleasant aspects. So a key question is, what are the aspects that you're focusing on? And are we allowing ourselves to just be a prisoner of the brain's motivational machinery, which is largely governed by the neurotransmitter dopamine, or are we taking more of an active role in choosing the behaviors that we want to have? One of the difficulties is that our brain is effectively built for a very different set of circumstances than the ones that we currently find ourselves in. And there are plenty of behaviors that made a lot of sense 20,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago, let alone millions and millions of years ago for our more distant ancestors, that these days in our current environment are pretty problematic. And that conflict between what we know cognitively and the brain's underlying motivational machinery is one of the reasons that it's often so challenging to stay disciplined toward a goal. I then spent some time summarizing the brain's dopamine system. Dopamine is often thought of as a pleasure molecule, but it's really more of a wanting molecule, a motivation molecule, or maybe even an anticipation molecule. And the big takeaway from this section is that people who have higher resting levels of dopamine tend to have an easier time staying motivated and disciplined in the pursuit of their goals, whereas people who have lower levels of dopamine struggle to do this. And one of the things that we want to avoid is these huge spikes of dopamine that are associated with highly addictive chemicals, or highly addictive experiences out in the world, because those spikes can destabilize the system as a whole, maybe even reducing the quantity of dopamine receptors a person has over time, and this leads to more normal range activities becoming much less pleasurable by comparison. Rick took a moment to highlight here that different people have naturally different levels of both resting dopamine and the quantity of dopamine receptors in the brain. People with more dopamine receptors tend to find it easier to stay on task. People who have fewer tend to find it harder to do so. So it's not your fault if you struggle to stay motivated. It's not some kind of a character flaw. This then took us into the more how-to part of the episode, where what we're trying to do here really is increase the experience of reward associated with the activities that we want to promote. And there are two really, really good ways to do this that Rick highlighted. The first is increasing the amount of reward associated with the experience by finding ways to make the experience itself, the behavior itself, more enjoyable for us. And then second, paying more attention to the rewards that are there. And this gets back to that idea of aspects of the experience. Are we focusing on the positive aspects or the more challenging aspects? So when you're getting some reward from an activity that you want to have more of in your life, 
you are working diligently at your desk and you normally struggle to do that, something you can do is deliberately focus on the positive aspects of the experience, the sense of fulfillment, the enjoyment associated with getting something done. Really hold it in your mind. Let it stay there for a while. Make it feel big. Make it feel good. Really sink into that experience and allow the experience to sink into you. To borrow language from Dr. Judd Brewer, this is a way that we can update the reward value of our activities, making the ones that we want to do more of more pleasurable, and in the same way, we can focus on the less enjoyable aspects of the activities or behaviors we have that we want to do less of. A great example of this for me in my life is my probably excessive smartphone usage, where I can deliberately tune into the ways in which just scrolling on my phone is really not very enjoyable, and ah, I'm wasting a lot of time here, and man, I'm kind of slack-jawed staring at Instagram or whatever. Is this really what I want to be doing with my time? And there are many things we can do to play with our experiences in this way. We can increase the amount of novelty associated with our experience. One way to do this might be switching up your work environment in little ways, or switching up your exercise routine, keeping it interesting, keeping it fresh. The brain is a magnet for novelty. It loves new and different. Then we can increase the focus that we place on process goals distinct from outcome goals. It's pretty common for people to feel like they're only allowed to feel good about something when they achieve the final end that they've been pursuing. But the truth is that often those final ends are not as enjoyable as we wish they would be. They last for a little while and then the enjoyment goes away. And then if we do that, we're not allowed to feel good very often, right? We want to feel good along the way as we pursue our goals, which is what process goals are all about. And then we can do things to interact directly with the brain's dopamine system. One example of this is social support. Really interestingly, sociality increases dopamine in the brain. We get a dopamine hit off of interacting with people, particularly people that we like. So if possible, you can ask for positive feedback from others, from friends, from supporters, from coworkers, if they're the kind of coworkers who are up for that sort of thing, and that can really increase the amount of dopamine that we have access to. Then again, exercise increases dopamine, and there's even some evidence that things like listening to music can increase dopamine production as well. Then there's some evidence that different diets and particularly higher levels of protein consumption might increase the amount of dopamine production in the brain, but the research on this is actually a little fuzzy and mixed right now in terms of whether or not those dopamine precursors actually increase the quantity of useful dopamine as opposed to just the overall level of dopamine. And I am not an expert in this territory, so I offer that recommendation very diffidently. Then a big thing we can do to interact with the dopamine system is to reduce our excessively dopamine-producing behavior those big spikes of dopamine that I was talking about earlier. And this includes everything from illicit drug use to smoking and alcohol to extremely sugary foods to social media to gambling. All of those activities cause a big spike of dopamine production. And over time, the brain eventually goes, whoa, this is way too much dopamine in my system, so I'm going to reduce the number of dopamine receptors that I have which then causes experiences that were once pleasurable to no longer be as enjoyable. And this can make it really hard to stay disciplined. We then close the episode by talking a bit about clearing away the obstructions to staying disciplined in your life. What are the fears that you have that might be getting in the way of pursuing your true goals? What are the ways in which there's an inconsistency between what you actually want and what you are pursuing because somebody has told you effectively that you should want this thing. Rick really emphasized over and over again this idea of being naturally carried toward a better version of yourself. And what are the things that impede that process? And what are the ways that you can support yourself in increasingly becoming the person you truly wish to be? I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I had a great time diving into the research for this one. If you would like to see more of that research, you can subscribe to us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for every episode of the show, I create expanded show notes that go into everything that we talk about in much greater detail. 
This includes really getting into the research behind the show and some of the studies that support the various things that we talk about. That costs just a couple of dollars a month to support the show, and you'll also receive things like ad-free versions of the episodes and transcripts of everything that we produce. And of course, at no cost to you, the best way you could support the show is by subscribing to it through the platform of your choice. Leave a rating and a positive review if you've got the time to do that. And hey, you could always tell a friend about it because it's one of the absolute best ways we have to reach new people. So until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.